Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we're glad you're joining us this week. We are here every week at noon on KTRL FM 90.5 and streaming on the internet at tarletonradio.com. You can also catch us after the show on SoundCloud to download today's or previous episodes, and you can also find us where you download your podcast. So as we work to do almost on a weekly basis to bring you quality interviews on very critical topics, uh, it's my pleasure today to welcome Dr. Bruce Bechtel, professor at San Angelo State University. Uh, We're glad he's joining us today because he is one of the foremost experts on the Koreas and on that part of the world in East Asia, uh, formerly a faculty at the Marine Corps Command and Staff College and the Air Command Staff College. He also served as an adjunct visiting professor at the Korea University Graduate School of International Studies. He served as a senior analyst for Northeast Asia in the Intelligence Directorate and the Joint Staff in the Pentagon. And he is author of the recent book, North Korean Military Proliferation to the Middle East and Africa, Enabling Violence and Instability. And the one before that, North Korea and regional security in the Kim Jong-un era, a new international security dilemma. Dr. Bechtel, we're glad to have you with us today. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, we try to uh, bring in international issues on a regular basis on this show, especially our broadcast and the Cross Timbers area. We reach into the the Fort Worth area some as well, but... uh, with our mix of local, state, national as well, international issues uh, need uh, attention as well. And I think that's really my first question for you today with your background and the research that you've done and the experiences that you've had. Uh, why is uh, East Asia and specifically what happens on the Korean Peninsula, uh, in, uh, why, is, why should that be important uh, to the average person, not just, and I'm looking at this in a global view, not just saying, oh, for Americans, but but why should we have an awareness of what's happening in that part of the world? Well, I'm happy to talk about it just as an American, since you and I are Americans, but <laughs> but but uh, uh, let's talk economics and then talk security, because those are the two biggies uh, for us in uh, East Asia, specifically Northeast Asia. You know, in the Korean War in 1950, when Harry Truman took us to war, the streets in Seoul weren't even paved. And I don't know if you've been to Seoul any time in the past few years, but it's more modern than any city I've ever been to in America. The place has really changed. We went to war with those guys to help them in 1950 with 19 UN member states um, because it was the right thing to do, Um, not because it had any effect on us regionally or economically, that has all changed. Um, If you look at our relationship with South Korea now, of course, I have a bias because my wife's Korean. So, of course, we all drive Kias and uh, we just got an LG microwave. But I mean, beyond that, um, you know, Koreans have become an integral part and Korean Americans of American society, including here in Texas, in places like the Dallas Fort Worth area as well. South Korea is our sixth largest trading partner. South Korea has the 10th largest GDP on earth, which makes them an economic powerhouse. And at the same time, you have right on their border another nation that's also of Koreans, and now we're getting into the security side, where they have been malnourished for so long 
that the average North Korean is a full head shorter than the average South Korean. It's quite compelling. Um, this is also a nation that has nuclear weapons and they have a platform that can carry them at least to the west coast of the United States, um, ballistic missiles. Um, so we have a very compelling threat. They have the world's fifth largest military um, next to um, 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 what's the name? Eritrea. That's the country I'm thinking of. Next to Eritrea, North Korea has the highest uh, demographic state of men in the military compared to their population. Only Eritrea has it higher. Don't ask me why I'm not an African specialist. You have one there, though, and I met him. He's very good. Um, so we are facing that right now. Um, and we have 28,000 American troops there. We have a modern Air Force base. We just, uh, with a lot of money from the South Koreans, $9 million, um, built uh, beautiful new facilities down at um, near Pyeongtaek. Um, so when we're talking security, we're both facing the North Korean threat, a, a, uh, a, a nation state that is in disruption right now for a lot of reasons, including the COVID virus. And we're talking about change in our alliance because President Trump has told the South Koreans that they need to ante up a lot more money for uh, to pay for U.S. troops to be on the peninsula, um, which is something I'd love to talk more about. It's something I've been writing about in recent times. Um, a lot of Americans know a whole lot about what's going on with NATO. You know, the only NATO country that's really paid to, what they're supposed to pay by treaty which is 2% of their GDP, has been the United Kingdom. And so you've got these other modern, vibrant nation states that just refuse to pay their fair share. That's not the case with South Korea, and I can get into that with, in detail with you if you'd like, but it is certainly something that is up for great debate right now because in South Korea, their biggest worry has always been, is the United States going to pull out and leave us someday? So I'll just leave it there. Well, so the U.S. has had a significant presence in that part of the world. In the, the 20th century, we saw that. And, and of course, it, uh, coming from uh, our background in political science and seeing how, how some of that has, has changed. I mean, uh, uh, one, one that I'm familiar with is the shift from, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of the U.S. being the, the hub of the wheel that kind of tried to pull all that together to then the focus on the war on terror. Here lately, we hear so much about China, about trade, about um, uh, other issues back and forth. But uh, but East and South Asia is a huge region with a, a huge population, and and there there are a lot of other issues and things that are happening that that influence the rest of the world. What what are some of those significant issues that uh, that most people don't hear about that that we should be aware of in terms of what's happening in especially especially East Asia? Well, certainly, I talked real. I just briefly mentioned North Korea's nuclear weapons. That's a big deal. Um, that's certainly a big deal to its neighbors, particularly South Korea and Japan, because they have the platforms to to launch those uh, nuclear weapons. They have uh, ballistic missiles that have ranges from 300 kilometers all the way up to uh, 12,000 kilometers. Um, so that's that's a big security issue um, right now. In Asia, believe it or not, cyber warfare and the robbery of banks and businesses 
and the attack on military targets and government targets and the press, the free press, um, by North Korean cyber experts has been a big deal, um, getting larger. And ironically, and I, I haven't written about this yet, so you're the first to hear about this. In looking at the trends, because North Korea just started really using cyber warfare about six years ago, um, in looking at the trends, they've made a switch. Not a total switch, but they they placed their efforts, their um, their emphasis now more on attacking banks and other financial institutions to get money for the state than they have on attacking military targets and government targets. So, um, I, I mean, to me, that's just another sign that the sanctions that are on North Korea are working. Um, another thing about the North Koreans is they sell arms, everything from um, small arms. They, they sell the Type 73 machine gun, which is basically um, a copy of a Russian-made machine gun from the Cold War era, um, to the Syrians, the Iranians, the Houthis, Hezbollah, Hamas, etc., all in my book, which, by the way, is available on Amazon.com. And uh, um, they sell everything from that rifle through tanks, aircraft, chemical weapons, and, of course, nuclear weapons in the Middle East. And so we've seen that. The UN panel of experts reports have been very good about telling us about that. Um, so I think what's interesting about that and, and quite compelling as well is the fact that this ties Asia to the Middle East. And now we've just seen a huge um, treaty sign or agreement, I guess you'd call it, between China and Iran. Um, everything from, you know, construction projects to military aid or military buying, China's not going to give them anything, um, just signed between China and Iran. So China's obviously trying to get a footprint over there. And I think that leads to something many of your listeners um, have probably been seeing a bit on the news, which is, um, you know, the Chinese, uh, the Chinese American Cold War that seems to be developing fairly rapidly, uh, much more rapidly than I thought I would. But a lot of us who study Asia for a living, yourself included, probably thought that this was inevitable sooner or later. And um, so we're seeing that. I would expect you know, the kind of people that listen to a show like this are going to be the kind of people who read newspapers a lot and read journal articles and books and things like that. I would expect you'll see a lot more about China's, the, the new China-U.S. Cold War, where it's very different than the, the two systems that the USSR and the USA had during the first Cold War, where it was really a battle of systems as much as it was a military confrontation. Well, China and the United States are both in the same global system. So it's going to be very interesting to see how, because this is all about IPE, international political economy. It's going to be interesting to see how our two economies go after each other um, because we're in the same system. We sell to the same people. We invest in the same places. Our, our consumers consume largely the same types of things. Um, There'll still be sides, the quote-unquote good guys and bad guys. Hopefully, we'll be the good guys. <laughs> but, um, um, you know, I think that's that's going to be a very compelling issue. You know, I have many friends. Obviously, I'm a retired Marine. I spent 
six years after I retired as working for the Defense Intelligence Agency in the Pentagon. And so I've always focused on military stuff. But in Asia, with the big economic powerhouses there, China, Japan, Singapore, South Korea, economics is what it's all about. And the economics that China has used to make itself, and it can, you know, the, the things they have done to make themselves an economic world power are going to be applied to their military. But it's the economics that I think gain the attention of, of President Trump. And I think that that's what's going to, uh, no matter who the president is after this November, I think that's going to be a big deal on their plate you know, from from day one. So do you see uh, U.S. foreign policy in that region? I mean, maybe we can even go back into the Obama administration, but bring it forward into the Trump administration. Or is, is that do you see that anticipating uh, some of this that's happening? I mean, what what are we doing on on our part uh, to to be able to engage with, with what's happening. Because I know, you know, you talk about the expansion of China into the, the Middle East. You know, China's been in Africa uh, for a long time now in terms of the uh, economic investment and, and infrastructure projects and, and so on. And, and it's a little bit different footprint, I would say, probably than the Middle East uh, because of uh, just the different dynamics and different types of countries and, and where they are on the international level. I just don't know how you how do you see uh, how we've engaged with that with our foreign policy efforts, and this is kind of moving beyond just the kind of surface things of 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 the uh, you know meeting uh, Kim Jong Un and uh, you know all of the the things mm-hmm. that media has given attention to to the more substantive things of what how we're positioning ourselves. Well, let me give you two anecdotal stories on that if I can, since we're in the kind of program where I can kind of ramble on a bit. Hopefully not too much, but uh, I had a, a student two years ago write her thesis on China's involvement in Africa, which you just talked about. And uh, she and her husband were both, I would call them bush pilots, but that's not probably what they're called. They worked for an NGO operating out of Mozambique that was going into Sudan on a routine daily basis and helping out with the human rights situation there. And as she was doing this and going to school online with me, um, she was seeing Chinese everywhere in Sudan. And it really piqued her interest, so she decided to write a paper about it. Great paper. She's now the vice president of that NGO, and her paper scared the living daylights out of me. Because it's, I mean, um, there are certain rules, uh, international norms that nation states like the United States follow. And the Chinese government does not follow those rules. Um, uh, Another um, anecdotal story about China and Africa was everybody knows who studies Africa a lot. And as I said, you have an expert there who I've actually drank beers with. He's a great guy. And he, by the way, did a, a, um, a reference for a book that one of my friends here in our department wrote on Africa. So thank you. But, um, he, uh, he and I were talking about Nigeria and how corrupt Nigeria is. And what's so crazy about that is Nigeria is probably less corrupt than a lot of other sub-Saharan African countries. Um, but Nigeria got so corrupt and was so filled with violence that a lot of the American oil companies, like from here in Texas, just pulled out and said, we can't do this. 
we're not going to do this. We're not going to hire 400 guys with machine guns to patrol our our pipeline just because you can't you can't keep people from trying to steal it. Well, you know who who went in and was happy to do that? The Chinese. So I mean, we can expect I think to see a lot of that in uh, in the Middle East. I think the big difference is um, you know most of the countries certainly in sub-Saharan Africa, except for South Africa, perhaps, are very poor. And and so, you know, a lot of loans from China, a lot of, if you let us build this, we'll build this for free, but then you got to let us use your port facilities type stuff. Um, that does not exist in the Middle East. Iran's a rich country, um, you know, because of oil. Um, and and so I think a lot of this is, is as much strategic as it is economic. And it's certainly something that rates watching in, in coming years. Now, what else is it you wanted me to talk about? How we're preparing in terms of our own foreign policy and, and, and engagements uh, in those regions, or at least in, in, do you see this kind of building to, to counter China in any way in those, in those areas or regions? Or how, how do you perceive that, that both the previous and current administration are trying to, uh, to navigate this going forward? Well, I, I don't want to sound like a like a partisan Republican or a partisan Democrat, um, I, and I guess I really don't need to because in this case it applies to both. Um, you know, we were kidding ourselves when it came to the Chinese, and you look like you're you're younger than me. I'm 60, but uh, I'm an old man, um, and neither of my daughters have given me grandchildren yet either. By the way, which is disappointing, but. Uh, um, you know, going all the way back to George H.W. Bush, uh, we were talking about China and the issues with China, the corruption, the human rights issues, um, the fact that if something was made in a factory in China, it was manufactured in a far different way than if it was made in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, for example. Um, and and I, I think that's very important Presidents would always talk that when they were running for office, but once they got in, all these big American businesses who had so much money, still do, had so much money tied up in China, would always talk it down. And so we've basically been kidding ourselves for all these years. It's been at least 20 years now as China's economy was booming, growing at a faster rate than every economy basically on Earth, except for India which I think is great. India grows faster because it's a democracy and there's less corruption. But, um, you know, we see this and we keep, ah, it'll get better. They'll, they'll fix it. No, um, you know, everybody's seen what's going on in Hong Kong right now. And that's a preview of coming attractions. Everybody knows that when the Chinese get in an economic relationship with another country, it's far different than if we do. That is to say the United States, because they don't play by the same rules we do. And yet everybody kept killing themselves because so many Americans were making money hand over fist by their foreign direct investment in China. I think that has come to a, or close to a screeching halt now. Um, you know, there's many good things and bad things about what President Trump has done. But one of the great things that he's done in my view is get Americans, you know, guys like you and me always look at it. But my daughter graduated from the University of Iowa, and Trump actually got farmers in Iowa 
talking about the China problem. And I think that's important. We have to all think of this as an issue, not against the Chinese people, but against the Chinese Communist Party, the guys running that authoritarian government there who refuse to uh, follow the same rules as everybody else in the global economy. So we're right in the middle of a, of a presidential election that will happen here in, in, uh, in a few months. Uh, we, we all look at how that election is viewed within our own context here in this country. And of course, a significant amount of attention is given to that. But elections, uh, U.S. elections are, uh, are, are watched and are very critical in the way that, that they're viewed overseas and, and around the world, you know, and, and especially in Asia. Uh, you're, you, I mean, from North Korea or even China, what, what, what is the significance uh, of, of not just a presidential election, but maybe this one. Do you see some some critical things that that uh, governments and and leaders are looking at uh, from countries in that part of the world? Well, my you know that's a great question. By the way, you're are you an Asian specialist? Uh, well, I almost went that direction. Uh, I, I took a summer of Mandarin. Uh, I was going to do a South. Uh, uh, East or Southeast Asia at some point, and uh, I ended up going in a different direction. So, but I've taught a course on on East Asia a couple of times, so that gives me a little bit of background. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. It's fun. I, I, for whatever reason, I like being in Asia a lot more than I like being in Europe. Although I was in Geneva last September, and it is a beautiful city, I have to say. Um, there is no place like Geneva in Texas. No. <laughs> Um, but you asked about, you know, other countries watching us. I think, for example, because you brought up North Korea first, I think, for example, Kim Jong-un, without a doubt, is watching the American elections. I mean, we all are, because the elections right now look like they're going to be very close, not just for president, but for the House and for the Senate. Um, perhaps not in places like Texas, but a lot of other places, swing states, it will, obviously. Um, he's watching that because... You know, um, I remember when Obama was running for president, he said he was going to talk to these authoritarian leaders. Um, he didn't. I mean, his other people, you know, Kerry obviously talked to the Iranians, et cetera. Um, but Trump has talked to Kim Jong-un. And what we've seen is kind of a detente, a tap down, if you will, in in the rhetoric and in, and in the tension. Now, North Korea has not done anything that should make us lift sanctions against them. They still sell, you know, chemical weapons to Syria, for example. Um, they still abuse the human rights of their own people in ways that would just shock the average American. Um, but at least they're not talking about pointing nuclear-tipped missiles at us. Um, that's a good thing. Um, will that stop when, uh, if, I don't know if it's when or not, but if uh, Biden wins the election, how will that um, how will that bode on the the relationship that we have had with North Korea since 2018? The answer to that is I don't know because as you I'm sure you watch politics as much as I do. The Biden folks have not really talked about their Asia policy hardly at all. Uh, not just North Korea or South Korea, but Japan you know, which we haven't talked a lot about today, but Japan is a huge ally, 50,000 troops, you know, fourth largest trading partner. Um, you know, I, I have always argued that they don't need 
ballistic missile defense because they've got Godzilla. He can just slap those missiles down in the sky. But uh, I mean, very important allies, economic and military issues over there haven't been discussed by Biden yet, um, largely because, um, and I'm, I really don't want to blame him or anybody else, largely because, as you know, um, and every American knows, the coronavirus has just cast a shadow over everything. That's all everybody's talked about, probably with pretty good reason, um, you know, for the past four or five months. So we'll see. I don't know. But like you, I'll be watching. Um, I think the Chinese are watching this election. Um, you know, getting back to Joe Biden, I know that his son had, was set on the boards of a couple of Chinese companies. Um, that may all be coming to a screeching halt. Um, I mean, how can we, I mean, we went through this before, right? I mean, like I said, I'm an old man. I was a, um, a gunnery sergeant in the Marine Corps in 1989 when Tiananmen happened. And I remember being in the, in the staff NCO barracks in Kaneohe, Hawaii, and watching that brave young Chinese kid who just stood in front of the tank. Remember that? And I said, that has to be the coolest dude in Asia. You know what I mean? Um, are we going to get back to that? It, it looks like we are, you know, with Hong Kong. Um, everybody thought or hoped or told themselves that as China advanced economically, that they would move closer to democracy. Because we saw that happen in Taiwan and Singapore and South Korea, um, even in Japan. We haven't seen that in China. So, I mean, you can go to a disco in China, in Shanghai and spend 400 bucks on fancy tequila drinks, but the CCP is still going to be watching you when you go home. Um, that's going to be an issue, I think, for the uh, Biden administration. And we already know what direction the Trump administration will take if they, if they get reelected. We know the direction they're going. Um, so I think that is a big question. If Biden gets elected, how will he approach China as, as opposed to how President Trump has approached it? Well, Dr. Bechtel, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, we're, we're running close on time here, and you're all interesting areas and directions we could go with this. And I would, would love to have you back on in the future as well, because I know these issues are going to be uh, with us, and we already see some direction based on, on what you've uh, shared with us today. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, sir, for inviting me. It's an honor. We will take a short break, and we will be back with more on politics. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University. And today for the second half of our show, uh, we are joined by Luis Figueroa, who is the Legislative and Policy Director of Every Texan, uh, formerly the Center for Public Policy Priorities. And we're glad to have you on the show today, Luis. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about this. Appreciate it. Well, your experience having worked in the Capitol with uh, senators from El Paso and Houston and in the, the area and issues related to, to civil rights with the 
Mexican American Legal Defense Fund, and now your 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 policy focus with every Texan. Uh, one of the things that I promised my listeners on the show is that we will get to the critical issues that will most likely be the focus or, or maybe should be the focus of the Texas legislature uh, when they meet uh, this coming uh, January. And so I wanted to uh, reach out to you and, and, and get your perspective on some of this uh, so that we could give our listeners a little bit of a preview or maybe uh, uh, some things to think about in terms of advocacy and engagement with what's going to be going on and what will be the kind of the challenges and issues that will be at the forefront. Uh, before we get into that, though, uh, uh, some people may not know what Every Texan is and, and what the focus is. So give us a little bit of background about what you do and, and what Every Texan uh, does in terms of uh, focus on policy and advocacy. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, we are formerly the Center for Public Policy Priorities. Uh, one of the reasons we changed our names to Every Texan is because we fundamentally believe that social justice uh, begins and, and requires uh, policy. And you know, public policy um, is at the heart of, of social justice in the sense that uh, at the end of the day, you're trying to create a change um, to create equity, you know, equity for people of color, equity for low income, uh, equity for communities that have been marginalized um, in the state and the country. Um, and so uh, that is our niche. Our niche is uh, working on, on policy. We have some of the experts in the areas of uh, healthcare, Medicaid, school finance, uh, budget and tax policy. Uh, we work on immigrant rights. Uh, we work on uh, access to food. Um, so, you know, those fundamental issues that are about uh, uplifting communities um, and, and those policy needs um, at the state, uh, in local, state, and federal level. Uh, but I will say uh, we spend a, a lot more time on the state level uh, with our proximity to Austin and our, our expertise on, on state level policy. Well, knowing some of those areas that you've mentioned are not only ongoing uh, concerns and challenges and certainly major issues of focus in the state of Texas, uh, we've we're in the middle of a pandemic. It's hit Texas uh, uh, very hard in terms of uh, the demand on health care, on, on uh, hospitalization, uh, not to say those that, that have uh, we've, the lives that we've seen lost because of this. But what, what have you seen? What, what specific issues that, that you see have really moved to the forefront? And, I, and, and I'm asking that because I would expect these are probably going to be the focus of at least some legislators, if not many, in the upcoming session, especially those issues that you see are very challenging uh, given the, the policy areas that every Texan tries to address. Absolutely, you know, it's gonna be such a very different looking session uh, in this pandemic environment. COVID-19 has really changed, been a game changer in so many ways. And, and But it really, what it has done is highlighted the inequities that have always existed, um, the inequities in healthcare coverage um, and so we spent the beginning part of, of the COVID really focusing on trying to get uh, free testing and treatment um, for all communities, especially those that um, lack insurance, health insurance, and those that um, are immigrant populations. Um, we focused on the unemployment. Um, there were so many barriers to getting unemployment benefits. Uh, you may remember uh, when, when everyone uh, was starting to um, really lose their jobs and, and furloughs and um, and layoffs were happening. Um, people were having a really hard time accessing the Texas Workforce Commission to apply for their unemployment benefits. 
Um, access to food was a huge issue. You know, m many children, their, their meals come from school. Um, and so when you close down schools, um, we saw those huge lines in San Antonio um, for people trying to access um, uh, food services um, at, the, at the food pantry and food banks. Um, and so we worked on trying to get electronic benefit transfers so that people uh, could use their cards, use a card and get access at other places and grocery stores. Um, and so um, these are the you know, fundamental inequities that were exposed because of COVID. Um, and I think next session, one issue that you know, I definitely want to highlight um, is the issue of Medicaid expansion. Um, other states, we are, we are no longer, every state that borders Texas has now done Medicaid expansion including Oklahoma and Arkansas and Louisiana, red states. Um, and Texas uh, is one of the few lone holdouts on this area. Um, and so we are really trying to create some movement um, that, that you know, suggests that we should really need to expand our access to health insurance because we are the state that leads the nation on the uninsured rate. Um, so that's an area where you know, COVID, again, has shown the inequities uh, and we're really hoping the legislature uh, will address that in in some manner. You you made that uh, the connection with or, or talking about health health insurance, and if we look back, and we seem to make have made some progress when the Affordable Care Act was passed, and uh, knowing the high rate, uh, and I, I I track this in my classes, and we talk with this about students, especially among children without access to health care. Uh, uh, individual singles that were, you know, uh, individuals that uh, may not have it provided through their employer and, and might have to look for it privately. And so it seems like we're, like you're saying, we're going back the other way now. Uh, a lot of this is connected with the the, the challenges of, of poverty on the one hand, uh, but also maybe underemployment uh, and the lack of insurance maybe being uh, provided by employers. And so you have, have families that just, just can't afford it. Uh, where do you see some of those uh, connections? I know uh, every Texan has done a tremendous amount of work in the past focused on the effects of poverty in relationship to education and health care. Mm -hmm. um, where do you see some of the, the critical issues there that may or may not be addressed in our legislative session? I mean, I, I think on one hand, and we'll get to this in a moment, the focus is really going to be on the budget and revenue and what 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 uh, uh, budget constraints may be in place. But mm -hmm. uh, I think it's important that we keep these issues in front of us to know uh, mm -hmm. about uh, the quality of life of people throughout the state and the, and the struggles that they're finding. So co a couple of connections here on these issues. Yeah, well, let me start with where you started, the Affordable Care Act. Um, you know, Texas um, is one of the states um, with our attorney general leading the way to repeal the Affordable Care Act um, that is gonna be up in the United States Supreme Court pretty much right after the election. Um, and of course, with that um, goes the, you know, coverage for pre-existing conditions, um, the subsidies for um, marketplace uh, health insurance um, and, and all the other protections that are created by the Affordable Care Act. Um, we as a, as a state uh, have been very reluctant um, to pull the federal funds um, to draw uh, you know, the funds to increase access for health insurance for those who don't have it through their employer. Um, and through COVID, um, as I mentioned before, with all these folks uh, becoming unemployed and, and the growing unemployment rate, they're losing their health insurance uh, with it, which means they have to either go to the marketplace or rely um, on, on uh, Medicaid. And so um, 
that connection is going to become more and more clear um, that uh, if we don't come up with a solution, um, Texas is going to be in a really bad shape um, if we don't have the access to the health care that so many children and, and, and adults rely on. Now, I will say on CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program, one of our advocates, Ann Dunkelberg, who's really the expert in this, um, was uh, instrumental in passing the Children's Health Insurance Program. Um, and so that uh, has been one of the, the great programs uh, in Texas, but we need to um, grow from that. One of the issues we worked on last session was that there are so many barriers for this continuous enrollment. So children oftentimes have to go back to the state agency to re-enroll um, for their health insurance. Um, and what we have found is that every time you make them come back, um, you lose more and more kids and you make them you know, fill out documentation and you make them fill it out every month or every few months. Um, that uh, barrier results in people being dropped even though they would totally still be eligible. Um, so we were working on trying to get continuous eligibility last session. Uh, we were able to pass that through the house that stalled in the Senate uh, we really hope that there will be some momentum um, to at least do that next session um, if we're not going to do Medicaid expansion. But the real answer um, is drawing those federal funds, um, which will not only help the uninsured, but it'll help save rural hospitals. Um, it'll help save um, these healthcare providers um, that um, are in desperate need of these Medicaid dollars. Um, and so it, it is a win-win across the board, and which is why red states all across the United States have been adopting it many times through ballot initiative, but also through the legislature. We know that these uh, issues are going to be impacted by uh, the current budget crisis. Uh, already, you know, we saw it at, at an institution of higher education. We, we got the 5% cut in this cycle uh, for this year, and we'll see it again next year. But I think all eyes are already on that that next budgeting process for the biennium with the uh, release of the budget guidance this week for for many state agencies. And so that combined, I think there's two facets here I'd like to ask you about. One combined with demographic growth, uh, which Texas has seemed to be challenged with over and over again with having the the revenue to to keep up with that growth. We we some of our highest uh, uh, items in our state budget overall are education, uh, Medicaid, healthcare, uh, looking at those areas. But but as you've shown and every Texan has and, and other data shows, it's just not enough. Uh, what, do, what do you see are some of the, the risk and challenges here going into this session, uh, knowing that we're probably going to see uh, some budget uh, constraints in place? Uh, and maybe what are some ideas do you see? Yeah. What are some things the state could do? I know as, a, as an organization, you've advocated for a number of changes to the way that we do our revenue uh, system yeah. in the state. Yeah, so let me say first and foremost that, that uh, the revenue shortfall is a policy decision. Uh, it is not inevitable. It's not something that has to be done. It's a choice that policymakers um, are going to be confronted with. Um, and it doesn't need to happen. Um, so first and foremost, I would say um, the Economic Stabilization Fund, uh, often referred to as the Rainy Day Fund, uh, was designed specifically for this purpose. Uh, we have seen in years past where legislators say, no, you're only supposed to use the Rainy Day Fund uh, when it's a weather-related weather crisis, which is completely uh, not true to its historic. And then when it's an economic um, recession um, and we want to use it, they say, or, or in the opposite, when it's a weather-related event, they say, no, it's really supposed to be used for an economic 
uh, recession. So they'll flip-flop um, depending on the session. Uh, ultimately, the, the Economic Stabilization Fund's purpose uh, is to provide the relief when um, the revenue is, is short for a short-time session so that you don't have to cut public education you don't have to cut healthcare services so the families don't suffer uh, and you can expedite the recovery. Um, the more people you have that um, aren't able to get access um, to, you know, uh, to healthcare or to uh, food or to um, education uh, or particularly the, the industry that really gets hurt, hurt the most during these recessions is the higher education industry, um, you know, and, and specifically the students uh, because there will be cuts to Texas grants, uh, which are not constitutionally protected. Um, and that means that those students um, aren't going to get the skills necessary to get the good jobs down the road. You're, you're decreasing the investment on economic growth long term. Um, so first and foremost, we got to use uh, the rainy day fund, the economic stabilization fund. Secondly, um, there are a bunch of revenue options. We got to grow the pie through using different revenue sources. And, and one I'll mention real quickly um, is these um, chapter three, um, 313, 313 chapters where we give corporate tax cuts um, to corporations who are coming to Texas. Um, a study has found that many of these corporations would be coming without those, without those tax cuts. Um, and then the school districts, um, uh, who are relying on those tax cuts, they get paid, the, they, they get held harmless by the state. But at the end of the day, the state is footing the bill for these tax cuts, which is reducing our overall revenue. Um, that is a, an, an inequitable system because um, these corporations are not the ones who need it the most. Um, the school districts um, could be getting that money directly from the corporations. Um, and as we have and of you uh, demonstrated through study after study, um, the tax cuts are not what's driving the companies to come. A lot of times it's, it's because of the geography of what is provided in the state, you know, the access to the, um, to the oil or to, or to the fuel or whatever they need um, is only available in, in that area. So that's just an example. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different ways to increase revenue, um, but we're going to have to uh, think outside the box and, and take some tough decisions um, to, to get that done. And, and that's why we say, it's about policy, it's about those decisions, um, and, and it's not an inevitable situation that we have to cut services to families. Just staying on that for just a moment, uh, because I, I know we, we come back to this in our uh, classes a, a lot of time and looking at the, the long-term picture and knowing that that's very significant challenge in Texas to look at uh, any kind of major constitutional reform that might pave the way to changes in fiscal policy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and what I mean by that, is, you know, I, I think you know this as well, is that we're, you know, our revenue system is so constricted uh, by the way it's set up and what the legislature can or can't do. Uh, there's not any really movement. I always tell my students there are not people with uh, pitchforks and torches on the <laughs> stairs of the Capitol in Austin claiming for constitutional re reform, you know, wanting constitutional right, right. reform but um but so there, there are others out there who've said that that we need to to make some incremental changes or short-term changes because just the revenue is not keeping up with demographic growth mm -hmm. and thus these kind of essential services that we see in education and healthcare, others are just continuing to fall 
fall behind. They're, they're not mm -hmm. sufficient uh, for, for what we need. Uh, what, where do you, where do you follow? Where does every Texan fall in that and seeing what yeah. are some of the things that we could look at changing that, that might have an impact and, and, and not have a, uh, a more devastating impact on the people who are struggling with the resources that, that, uh, or the, or the services that we have. I think people need to connect those those dots. So you're right. There aren't people, um, you know, breaking down the Capitol doors, uh, asking for, uh, you know, constitutional provision changes or, you know, tax uh, and policy change. But what they are um, clamoring for is uh, access to higher education, right? Parents um, and kids are being completely priced out of higher education. Um, they are asking for uh, teacher pay raises where teachers are, um, you know, struggling to, to make a living, uh, particularly um, in, in certain parts of the Texas. Uh, we know rural communities are really feeling the effects of uh, education um, costs um, and uh, healthcare costs um, and not having access to hospitals and healthcare because the hospitals are, are closing down or they're too far away to get access to. Um, so when you connect the dots between the services and the funding, um, people realize that we do need fundamental changes to our tax and policy um, proposals. And, uh, and what we call it is, we call it updating um, and modernizing our, our tax code. Uh, give you an example, natural gas uh, is, is, was originally given this big tax cut because of the economy that what it was created in. Now we're in a completely different economy. Uh, and so maybe it's time to update it. A gasoline tax hasn't been updated for inflation um, in decades. Um, I think it was in, in the early 90s, uh, the last time it was updated. Um, and so it's not really about like changing the entire thing, but it's about updating it, modernizing it, making it more reflective of the economy that we're in and the actual needs that we're in. Um, you know, as you mentioned, demographics have changed the circumstances, the industries have changed, um, inflation has changed. So if we just updated our tax code, uh, we would be in a much better position um, and, and it wouldn't require a complete revamping of everything. Uh, an update would get us, uh, you know, pretty far along the way. Very good. Yes, and that and that might be more incremental and might be more likely to happen if we can look at that. Uh, I, I wanted to just kind of turn this a little bit, still stay focused on on every Texan and, and what you do. But I think a, a lot of people or listeners, and I see this with students in the classroom as well, when they look at the the legislature and the legislative process, they think you know everybody gathered in a room, they talk about it, and then they take a vote. Uh, and, and you know from your experience that it's a much more engaged and intense process than that. Um, wh where, where are your efforts uh, as, on behalf of every Texan? Uh, what, what's, what does it really take to get started with the issues that, that you will be focused on in this, in this next legislative session? Uh, we've got an election coming up. Uh, what, what will you be doing between now and, and the opening of the session and even beyond that? in order to try to move some of these issues forward. Absolutely, and it's such a crossroads time. Uh, you know, we will potentially have a new speaker. I mean, we will have a new speaker because the current speaker has not run for re-election. Uh, there's a potential that the House will, will change parties, uh, the Texas House, that is. Uh, we potentially have a new president. It's a census year, uh, which, you know, is gonna make a huge difference uh, in the districts, how they're composed. Uh, we're going to redistricting. Um, and we're going into this environment in the COVID pandemic um, situation. Um, so it is going to be, uh, you know, a session to remember for sure going in, into January. 
uh, our focus is, you know, is a lot uh, based on the on the movements. The, the the movements are growing around the state, um, and so you know, access to healthcare I think is a is a movement. Last last session it was a session of school finance, um, and for sure we're going to be doing work on school finance. We want to make sure that those funding levels um, stay there and are become more equitable. Um, but uh, healthcare is is a movement that's growing. We have a campaign called Sick of It TX uh, because um, people are are sick and tired of not being able to access uh, healthcare coverage. Um, they're, they're tired of, of rural hospitals closing down. Um, they're tired of, uh, of having to pay these huge um, costs. You know, one thing we were able to address a little bit was surprise billing um, in hospitals, but it only uh, affected the state system. Uh, we need that on the federal level as well. Um, and so uh, access to unemployment, you know, we see on Congress, um, we're still waiting for the unemployment benefits to be extended. I, I, we know there's an executive order, but we know that has fallen way short of what's needed. Um, and so uh, we know this session is a real opportunity because of the things I mentioned, the potential changing of leadership, at least on the House side, even on the Senate side, um, you know, there's a there's a potential uh, change there because, um, you know, under the rules of the Senate, um, the three-fifths rule, which blocks legislation from coming to the floor, um, the Democrats may be in position um, to be able to block legislation again, which means that more conversations will be opening up. There'll be maybe uh, more bipartisan efforts, even on the Senate side. Um, and, um, and I think the COVID environment has changed the environment. Now, you can't just pretend that the healthcare crisis um, is, is something that can be ignored. It's first and foremost in people's mind. Um, and uh, and the budget revenue is real. Uh, the, the revenue shortfall is real. So people are going to be looking for ways to generate revenue in an equitable manner. Um, and so this is real opportunities to make those big changes uh, or even incremental changes um, that can fundamentally um, alter the lives of people of color, disadvantaged communities, Texans across the board, uh, and not just about, you know, the rich getting richer. I'll always ask for... Uh, uh encouragement or, or guidance here for our listeners. Uh, I'm, I'm really big on civic engagement. We teach that. That's our focus in our government classes is trying to not just give students knowledge, but to help them be responsible members of society and to you know, hey, how do I get engaged? And so with your broad range of experience and, and what you're doing, what, what do you uh, communicate to people about how they can be more engaged with these critical issues? And, and then not just know about them, but to take that step beyond them, maybe in their own communities or on the state or national level uh, and try to have uh, have some influence and make a difference. Absolutely. I mean, I can't uh, express the importance of participating in the census. Um, this year, every Texan has, has really been trying to push that out. That is fundamental in terms of your representation, the federal funding that comes in, the businesses that come in. And then there's a common phrase you hear at the Capitol, and, and it's a cliche, but legislators say it all the time, elections matter. Um, and if you come out to vote and you, uh, you, know, you change the incumbent or the incumbent stays, um, that is a referendum that uh, legislators uh, at all levels will use to justify their positions. Um, that if you, you vote out the guy that, or, the, or the woman that's there, then that means the change needs to happen, um, that there's a, a movement that's growing. Um, if the incumbent stays by you know big margin, then that's a sign that things are, are going good and people want to stay the same. Um, and then actually activating with the legislators. You know, uh, I worked in the in the Senate office as as you mentioned, uh, three sessions. Uh, you know, if we got three to five calls 
just three to five calls. We flag that for for our senator and say, hey, you're getting called on this issue. This is what you're. Con- it's particularly if they're in district constituents. Um, we you know we flag for the senator. Hey, you're getting calls on this issue. This is uh, something that's rising up. Uh, it doesn't take you know hundreds of calls and hundreds of emails um, to make a difference. Uh, if you get a few of your uh, like-minded um, you know constituents, friends, neighbors. Um, you can really, um, you know, make an impact and, and let your legislator know. And especially in this session uh, where access to the Capitol is going to be very limited, um, you know, those emails, um, those phone calls, um, those social media posts um, are going to be the way the legislators are gauging, uh, you know, what is uh, is happening in their districts and what people care about. Um, so uh, this is, uh, like I said, a, I think a real opportunity um, for folks to to make their voices heard, and and the more you engage with the census voting and contacting your your members, um, it could really make a big difference. Very good. Well, thank you for that encouragement, and and that's what we continually tell people uh, through this show and this format is to is to be engaged. Uh, uh, Luis, I want to thank you for joining us today. We've we've uh, had the opportunity to interview Luis Figueroa, the legislative and policy director for Every Texan. And we'll uh, post the link to Every Texan on our Facebook page so that uh, people can uh, uh, look at the work and the policy issues and the advocacy uh, that you're doing. And uh, we will also be looking at these issues in the upcoming session to follow them and see what what are some of the things that may be addressed uh, in this next session of the Texas legislature. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Happy happy to do it anytime. Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from AJ Hire and Taylor Welch. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.